0: You're listening to Puma Podcast. What's up, everyone? I'm Rafe Bartholomew, and you're listening to The Global Bounce. So, I just got back to the States a couple of days ago after spending three weeks in the Philippines to watch Manila host the 2023 FIBA World Cup. I'm still jet-lagged, still waking up at 1.30 a.m. for no damn reason, still bleary-eyed from a 16-hour flight, followed by a 12 hour cross country drive. But even so, I can't stop thinking about one question that ran through my mind from day one of the tournament to the gold medal game where Germany claimed its first ever World Cup championship. Is coaching a country's national team the most difficult, most thankless, and sometimes maybe even the straight up worst job in the basketball coaching profession? This question is, of course, informed by the nightmarish three weeks of World Cup action endured by the Philippine national team, its former coach, Chot Reyes, who announced his plan to leave the job before the tournament had even ended, and the millions of Filipino fans who root for Gilas Pilipinas to bring them some form of basketball glory on the international stage. But it wasn't just the Philippine coach whose reputation took a hit during the World Cup, Steve Kerr, the four-time NBA championship coach of the Golden State Warriors who helmed Team USA, found himself eating slice after heaping slice of humble pie after the pre-tournament favorites lost one, two, and then three games to Lithuania, Germany, and finally Canada before bowing out with no medals at all. By the time Team USA was ready to fly home, Kerr was facing criticism for choosing the wrong players for a FIBA tournament using the wrong strategy to succeed in the international game, and failing to use lineups that might have given the Americans a better chance to win. Does that sound familiar to any Gilas Filipinas fans who maybe just signed petitions on Facebook to send Chot Reyes into exile after two games? We'll get back to the 2023 World Cup, but first... I'd like to go back in time with the coach who agreed, somewhat reluctantly, to step in for Chot Reyes and lead the Philippine national team in the Asian games starting this weekend. I spoke with Tim Cohn, head coach of the Philippine Basketball Association's Barangay Ginebra franchise and the winningest coach in league history, shortly after the Southeast Asian Games in May, where he'd been an assistant coach under Chot Reyes and helped lead the Philippines to SEA Games gold over host nation Cambodia. Filipino fans expect to see their team dominate rival Southeast Asian nations on the hardwood. In 22 SEA Games tournaments since 1977, the Philippines have been crowned champions 19 times. But the 2021 Sea Games were one of the three times that the Philippines failed to win it all, and the country's patriotic fans would not accept another upset defeat. Listening to Coach Tim describe the pressure the coaching staff felt and the minefield of obstacles the team faced just to win a minor regional basketball competition provides a glimpse into the special kinds of stress and misery that often accompany the enormous honor of representing the country as a coach of the national team. For the Philippines, the Sea Games puts coaches in a no-win situation. If they win gold, they're merely meeting expectations. If the team falls short, they have to carry the humiliation of a -a once-in-a-decade collapse. And while this year the Philippine team was simultaneously preparing for the more daunting task of competing in the World Cup, Regional rivals like Indonesia, Thailand, and Cambodia were treating the SEA Games as if this was their World Cup. You
1: know, we lost it last year, which I wasn't a part of, but we lost the gold last year in the Southeast Asian Games. So there was, uh, you know, the old redeem team theme coming back with this one. And, and uh, so right off the bat, there was a lot of pressure. You know, if we win, it's, it's no big deal. If we lose, it's the end of the world.
0: In this case, the Philippines suffered an early loss before the knockout games to Cambodia, which took advantage of permissive eligibility rules to field a lineup full of American players competing as naturalized Cambodians. The Philippines, following FIBA rules, played with just one naturalized citizen, the six-time PBA champion import Justin Brownlee.
1: The host team changed the rules uh, in terms of eligibility. We were able to bring guys that we weren't normally able to bring. A lot of our fill-in players, uh, you know, the FIBA rule is you have to have a passport by the age of 15 to be eligible for FIBA tournaments or international tournaments. Um, But the Southeast Asian Games said all you needed was a simple passport. So you could just, as long as a guy had a passport, he could play. So some of the teams went out and just naturalized uh, a bunch of players to to give passports. And, uh, and we really didn't know this was going to – maybe it was on us, but we didn't know this is this the rule until about two or three weeks before the tournament. And when we lost to Cambodia, it was literally the end of the world. Nobody expected us to lose to Cambodia. I mean, Cambodia has never been a basketball power. I think probably the last time we played Cambodia, we beat them by 80 points. So, you know, for them to suddenly you know, raise their head and suddenly you know take us apart, it was really, I think, frustrating for the whole country. And uh, of course, the backlash of losing that—that was—that's the hardest part about being a, a national team coach. Is that when things don't work, you get an incredible amount of backlash. We had actually targeted Indonesia as our team to beat throughout the, the whole preparation that we had. You know, Coach Chart was talking about Indonesia, Indonesia, Indonesia all the way through because that was a team that uh, that beat us in 2000 or well, last year, and so. You know, we had kind of a redemption against Indonesia. So we were really well prepared for Indonesia when we played them in the semis. But uh, we had no idea about Cambodia until maybe a week or two before we heard that they were going to allow imports. We didn't know Cambodia was going to bring six.
0: And then there were the perennial bugaboos of national team coaches. Assembling a roster talented enough to win and then finding enough preparation time to help a squad of disconnected All-Stars play team basketball together.
1: We had to form a a brand new team that we have not had on the national team because of the the players that we normally have on the national team that we've had over this last year or so. A lot of them have been playing in Japan. The Japan League was still ongoing, so we couldn't get those guys. So we kind of had to put a team together really quickly. We went off for a week in an academy, a Inspire Academy, and and stayed there for a week and practiced and worked. And then basically two days later, we flew to Cambodia, and that's the team we had.
0: These team-building challenges present themselves in some way for just about every national team that participates in FIBA competitions. At the World Cup, Team USA featured a noticeable lack of American superstars, the Kevin Durants, Devin Bookers, and Anthony Davis's of the world. Reigning back-to-back NBA Most Valuable Player, Nikola Jokic, chose not to play for his native Serbia, as did Vasily Micic, arguably the top pro player in Europe over the past two years, who will begin his first season of NBA basketball with the Oklahoma City Thunder this October. Bronze medal-winning Canada was missing a pair of NBA champions in Jamal Murray and Andrew Wiggins. The trick is to get the most out of the roster of available players. And the national team coaches who do that are celebrated, while those who fall short get savaged by fans and local media alike. But the pitfalls facing Gilas Pilipinas in the 2023 SEA Games were even more drastic than that, thanks to a first-time host nation that lacked basketball infrastructure and a sweltering hot-season climate in Phnom Penh. I
1: mean, honestly, Cambodia is not a basketball crazy country you know they don't understand basketball as much as of the passion that we have for you know they they do just have naturally substandard facilities for basketball you know of course basketball we take our basketball extremely serious and we have the best facilities of all in in southeast asia for basketball so we went to a country that had no Facilities, so they just, you know, they are yeah, they just slapped over a linoleum thing. I, I'm not sure why they did that. They just put a, a sheet over the top. Uh, we really don't know what we were playing on top of. Uh, we know that it was really a hard court, and uh, you know, to them it was no big deal. And they were like, "Why are you complaining?" You know, but for us it was it was shocking. And then they told it, it wasn't just us, but they told everybody that our practice facility was outside the gym and, and so we went out there and looked and it was a cement court outside with wood backboards and it was in the middle of i mean cambodia is hot so they wanted us out there You our i think we had one scheduled practice at like three o'clock in the afternoon on an outdoor court and it must have been it would have been a hundred and plus degrees on that court but obviously we never used it we did see a couple of the teams use it. Malaysia, we watched them practice out there. There was no walls, no nothing. We could see them running their plays. It was, it was like we were like, wow. So we, what we did, we went out and scouted, you know, tried to find a facility on our own, and we found a club, a sports club, uh, and rent that court that was indoor, no air conditioning. But we were able to go there. The rims were great. We didn't really want to shoot that much on it, but we were able to – you know, walk through things and and actually put some offensive defense together. The flooring wasn't bad, so we were able to do that. And then the locker rooms, the first two days we were in a locker room, there was no air conditioning in the locker room, which is literally just one square room. And the first day we walked in, they had no chairs. And it wasn't just us. The day we played Indonesia in the semis, I walked by their locker room and it had air conditioning. The other side where we were the previous two days didn't have air conditioning. I walked by their locker room, the door was open, and I glanced in, and the whole Indonesia team was sitting on the floor. But Cambodia, they had their air-conditioned room every day. And so then we went out scouting for an air-conditioned room. You know? So we went, found out on the other side of the, of the building, there was like a storage room with an air conditioner. They had things in, and some of the liaison officers were in there eating. So we talked to the organizers insisted on having that that room. So they did give us that room for the championship round, and we walk in there, again, no chairs. So we had to go out and try to find chairs. So we were walking around the, the court while the game was ongoing, the other game was ongoing, grabbing chairs from everybody, everywhere we could get. And we were coming in one by one, guys going out, finding a chair, bringing it in. And so we finally got like 14, 16 chairs in the room, and Then there was a big commotion outside, walked out of our locker room. There was a military man that pulled all the liaison people together. We were told that he was really angry because we were walking around the the Coliseum. And I guess the word was disrespecting them because we were taking chairs and pulling them into the locker room. So it was a big to do about that. And the reason we found out later is because the prime minister of Cambodia was there to see the gate. And maybe we had stolen a couple chairs from them. I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was a real experience.
0: You know what I hear when I listen to Coach Tim describe this atmosphere? The ninth circle of hell for basketball coaches. Coaches are almost by definition control freaks. They do everything in their power to get the players they think they need to succeed develop winning cultures within their teams, and anticipate any hurdles that an unpredictable season might throw at them. In a tournament like the World Cup, Sea Games, or Asian Games, coaches have somewhere between 5 and 10 games, a fraction of a normal pro league season, to get the best out of a group of players that might have never played together before under perhaps the most unforgiving scrutiny and pressure these coaches have ever felt And sometimes, they don't even know if their locker room will have chairs in it, or if they'll be playing on a hardwood floor. And as Coach Tim will tell you, there are even times when under relatively ideal conditions, a national team stint can produce some of the lowest moments in an otherwise brilliant career. That was the case when he was chosen to coach the Philippines at the 1998 Asian Games in Bangkok, Thailand. This was the first major tournament to receive the full backing of the PBA since FIBA began allowing professional players to participate in international competition. And the league wanted to make a statement, sending perhaps the most star-studded lineup the Philippine national team has ever assembled. Along with the coach, who'd led the PBA's Alaska Milk franchise to a mid-90s dynasty, That was considered the Philippines' answer to the great Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls teams in the NBA during those years.
1: And it was the Asian Games, which we only did at that time. We only prepared a national team every four years. So obviously there's no continuity. And that's always was the issue for the national team. There's never any continuity. It was like, who's the hot coach at the moment? And okay, let's put a team together and let's do what we can. So for me back then in 98, it was a completely new deal. You know, I was going into uncharted waters. I had no clue what to think about or you know, how to approach this thing. Didn't have a blueprint. You know, we were just kind of experimenting as we went along. And, you know, we went in with great, great expectations, hoping that we would uh, come away with a goal. Of it.
0: Those expectations were undoubtedly fueled by a 12-man roster that featured six players. Alvin Patrimonio, Johnny Abarientos, Jojo Lastimosa, Alan Kaidik, Verhel Meneses, and Kenneth Duremdes, who would be named to the PBA's Top 25 All-Time Player List in two years' time, as well as the seventh center Marlu Aquino, who joined the expanded Top 40 list in 2015 five of the 1998 national team players would win PBA Most Valuable Player Awards in their careers. It was legends up and down the lineup. The team was even given a special name, the Centennial Team, to commemorate 100 years since the Philippines first declared independence from Spanish colonial rule. From the splashy lineup of local hall of famers to the once in a century name, to even the team photo shoots, it was easy to see this team was put together quite intentionally to be the Philippines and the PBA's version of the 1992 Dream Team.
1: We went and got really the top, top guys and just tried to form them all together.
0: Was the media at the time thinking of this a little bit like the Philippines version of, you know, oh, the, the, the Dream Team?
1: For sure. Dream Team was you. that was a term that they used a lot. Of course, it ended up being the Centennial Team because it was the you know 100th anniversary of the of the country uh, that made it actually kind of unique because it had its own name its own Team. And, uh, but yeah the, the dream team was was really popular at that time because the you know US was making a big push back in the olympics and and was making a statement and that was really the that was really the intent of the powers to be here in the Phillip PBA, and the poc and whatever they wanted to make a statement That was kind of the pressure that we were under, just to be the dream team. But uh, we didn't have any Angolas at that time to play against.
0: (laughs) Coach Tim is, of course, referring to Team USA's first opponent in the 1992 Olympics and Charles Barkley's immortal quote, I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble.
1: China was really, really strong team. I thought that was one of their strongest, if not their strongest national team at that time. They were a team that played, and this was, what, 98. And they had, again, Meng Beteer, who was 6'11", 7' feet, Wang Juju, who was 7'1", 7'2". Both of them in and out of the NBA. They had a 6'8 power forward that was really a nice, nice player. What we thought was their best player at the time. They had a 6'6 shooter. And a six three point guard. So, you know, they were they were NBA size. Two seven foot. I mean, even today they don't have that kind of size in the NBA. Two seven footers, 6'9 guys, 6'6 shooting forward, 6'3 six three point guard. So that was something that we were really having to battle and what we were trying to prepare for.
0: With seven footer EJ File, six foot ten Filipino American Andy Siegel, and six foot nine Marlu Aquino. The Philippine Centennial team was built to compete with China, the rising dominant force in Asian basketball at the time, and things got off to an outstanding start. The PBA altered its normal 11-month schedule to give the Centennial team four months of preparation time. The team took a summer tour through the United States playing a series of exhibition games against top college programs like the University of Iowa Hawkeyes and Minnesota Gophers. The Centennial team went on to compete in the William Jones Cup Tournament in Taiwan, where they scored wins over South Korea and Chinese Taipei along the way to becoming the Philippines' first undefeated championship squad in the tournament since the famed 1985 version of the team that logged a historic overtime win over the United States in the title game.
1: Through the years between uh, 94 and 98, there were international tournaments that we went to, obviously. But we never sent our best players because we were always in league. You know, we were always playing. So it was always college guys or guys outside our league putting a team quickly together and going. And they were, you know, kind of hit and miss with those teams, usually a miss. And that always irritated the, the basketball aficionados uh, here. And uh, so when given a chance to put everybody, or put a, a really good team together, you know, the expectations were high. I, I don't think anybody had any higher expectations than me, honestly. You know, I felt we put a team together that was going to win. And I felt we had a really good chance to beat China. And I think everybody thought that we we did. And when we won the Jones Cup, you know, kind of elevated it. And then we went to the States and, you know, uh, they thought, wow, we're really preparing this team. You know, there was always the thing in the past is that we didn't have enough preparation Well, they felt that they gave us enough preparation so that we should be able to reach our full potential. And honestly, I thought so too.
0: When it finally came time to show and prove at the 1998 Bangkok Asian Games, the Centennial team met the challenge, sweeping its first four games versus Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, the United Arab Emirates, and host nation Thailand. They were on track for a gold medal showdown with China. They just needed one more win over South Korea, which would put the Philippines into the semifinals on the opposite side of the bracket from China.
1: And we weren't prepared for Korea, and that was totally on me. And they came out and shocked us, dominated us throughout the whole whole game. One of those games where just nothing was going right. They were hitting all kinds of shots, and they kind of used their speed to run circles around us. Didn't prepare for them well enough. And I've always felt, looking back, if we had played that team in a series, A best-of-seven series, I think we beat them. You know, I really think we beat Korea if we are in a best-of-seven series. And that's what we were good at. You know, that's what PBA was good at. We always played series. So we were used to, okay, we lost today. That's okay. We'll get them tomorrow. You know, all we got to do is win four games or win three games before they win two or whatever. You know, we can adjust to come back and beat them the next time, you know, once we know them. In an international game, you don't have opportunity. You know, rarely do you get a chance the second time around you got these guys one time and that's all you'll see them. So then that put us in a crossover with, of course, the powerhouse China. And uh, so we played them in the semifinals and we played them extremely well. Uh, I had a chance to go ahead in the last minute of the game and made a turnover and that cost us and we ended up losing the game by three points
0: or five points. The gold medal quest was kaput. The Philippines' chance to salvage a bronze medal even looked like it might slip away, when the group's tired, deflated starting unit came out flat against Kazakhstan in the third-place game. Coach Tim and the PBA's much-hyped Centennial team might have returned to Manila empty-handed, if not for the heroics of Jojo Lastimosa, Cohn's team captain with Alaska in the PBA, who had been benched for much of the tournament.
2: Coming into the third-place third bronze medal game, I didn't expect to play at all, because before that, I think three games, four games, I didn't play at all. And even in our practices, I sat out. Tim wouldn't use me in the 5 and 5 in our practices. I was sitting down there on the side watching them. So it, it got really bad between me and Tim during that time. And Johnny was even talking to me like, bro, what, what are you doing there on the sidelines? He went, no, I'm just here watching you guys. You, know, you go, go. So I wasn't part of what they were doing.
0: Lastimosa and Coach Tim's careers are forever intertwined in Philippine basketball history. Coach Tim credits Alaska's decision to trade for JoJo as one of the turning points in the franchise history and in his own coaching career, a move that led to the two of them winning nine PBA championships together at Alaska and JoJo beginning his coaching career as an assistant under Coach Tim in 2006. Throughout his playing days, JoJo was the clutch scorer Coach Tim relied on to close games in the fourth quarter of tough playoff matchups. To this day, they remain close, almost family to one another. But the centennial team experience came close to breaking that bond. And you can still sense the pain they feel when they look back on 98, the regret in Coach Tim's voice, and the bitterness in JoJo's.
1: And, and it was probably lack of communication i think maybe i had with them because i was so focused on everybody you know everybody else and what we were trying to do you know i felt that my alaska players would be there to support in any way that they could you know because i was the head coach and that i didn't need to worry about them you know they, they were they knew me you know the, you know i was going to do right by by the team and uh, that was my my thoughts going into the game, you know, I didn't have to worry about my Alaska guys. If you know, I'm going to play them a minute, they would understand. Or if I'm going to play them four, you know, forty minutes, they would understand whatever. Um, because it was, you know, it was a bigger goal going on here in terms of the, you know, playing for the national team as a to playing, you know, in the pro league in Alaska. Jojo thought that you know, he had a different perspective. He thought, well, I'm, you know, you, I'm his coach, and I should know what he can do, and so. You know, I have been the guy that has taken us to higher levels all the time with Alaska. And so why abandon me now? You know, so he was very upset and resentful that I wasn't giving him the time. And I never saw, honestly, I didn't see it building at all. I didn't see this building from him. Maybe because I was just so distracted and under pressure and didn't, you know, didn't realize this was all happening. So he built up resentment through the whole Tournament, uh, he was playing sparingly. I was going more towards Ruhel, Manessas, and Kenneth, basically because they had, you know, they were taller guys in that position. Again, looking back on it, I must have, I must have felt—I'm not sure I felt this—but I must have felt that Jojo was a little undersized for the position playing against, especially China. So, you know, just coaches making different decisions than what players think that should be made. And Jojo had always been close to me. So he felt it was kind of a betrayal that I wasn't playing him. And kind of on my eye side, I kind of felt it was a betrayal because, you know, we've been together for so long. You know, you, you should trust me and, you know, support me in in in, you know, what we're trying to do. And how this is hard. I you know, I got twelve players I gotta play. And uh, and so I, I
2: expected him to understand that. I think this there's a great lesson here for the upcoming players or even the current players now that, you know, staying ready is, is always going to be useful for any player because I stayed ready during that time. I, in my anger, I, I ran on my own um, because there was a trap below the hotel in the village where we, we stayed. So I, I, I kept myself in shape and, um, and cheered my teammates. I decided right on that. I said, if I'm not going to play, I'm not going to sulk over here and pout about it. And I'm just going to cheer my teammates and hope for the best, you know, that we, we could still win some more games. So I was just cheering them. And then on that bronze medal game, eh, I, I didn't expect to play. So let's go. I mean, like, we still have a chance to 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 get the bronze medal. And, you know, for some miraculous reason, and I think Jot was the one who was telling him that, hey, maybe it's time to, to get in Joe. I don't know what time I, I, I came in. I think it was late um, first quarter and uh, the rest is history. Uh, when we played Kazakhstan, um, you know, we just come out playing
1: China the day before. And so the guys that had played it, you know, were playing really tired. And so I did. I, I put Jojo in there early and he started uh, from the first moment. And he played like he had a chip on his shoulder and he just... He played out of his mind and carried us through that whole game. One of his all-time best performances as an individual player. It was kind of like a he was doing a kind of a statement game to me. Like, you know, see, this is what you were missing the whole time if you had played me, you
0: know, earlier. JoJo scored 19 points in the Philippines' 73-68 win over Kazakhstan, including seven in the last minute to put the game away and secure bronze for the Centennial team.
2: It was kind of like strange, strange feeling, like we were supposed to be happy. You know, I was happy, no doubt about it, but it's more of like, I told you so, <laughs> kind of like that, told you so, you could have, you should have used me. And um, even for Tim, um, he admittedly said that, like, you know, I, I feel so stupid not, not trusting Jojo more or something like that, you know. But I was more uh, relieved and kind of, for me, it was a redemption. You know, winning, winning bronze, you know, for the country, it's still, it's still a medal.
0: Even after the tournament, the tension remained between Jojo and Coach Tim when they returned to the PBA and resumed their careers together at Alaska. The two didn't speak for a lengthy stretch of time after the Asian games. According to some accounts, the silence lasted for months, even though the two had to show up at work together almost every day as player and coach. Sometimes Coach Tim says it was a period of weeks, Regardless, it was the most difficult test of their personal and professional relationship.
1: And then after the tournament, they kind of carried through. We didn't talk to each other for a few weeks, even when we went back to Alaska, uh, kind of carried over for a while. And just like anything else, you know, JoJo and I battled. That was just his personality and my personality. We battled through our whole careers when, when he was with Alaska. We had multiple multiple battles. That Asian games wasn't the only one. And uh you know, he had a real fiery personality. He's really, you know, bullheaded and I'm really bullheaded. And we would just clash at times. But we would always work our way through it. And it's one of those things, you know, Kobe Bryant expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And every time we'd have one of those dust ups, you know, uh it wouldn't kill our relationship. We would come back to it. And when we would come back to it, we would we build through that and we get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger until by the end of his career, you know, I don't think I ever had a better relationship with a player or a closer relationship with a player than JoJo.
0: Coach Tim hasn't tasted failure that often, at least compared to his peers. He's won 25 PBA championships in his career, more than any other coach in league history. But he doesn't hold back when he describes the trials of leading a team that's playing with the flag on its back.
1: There's a real burden on top of you when you're coaching the national team. And there's, there's, you've got multiple bosses out there. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people, you know, guys that are from the Senate to you know, the SBP to the POC. I mean, And their jobs are on the line oftentimes to make sure that you're doing your job. Because If you don't do your job, they're looking at them. So there's an immense amount of pressure uh, around you, which makes it different for the national team. And the expectations are always high. uh, And they're really expectations that we can never really live up to, in my opinion.
0: He even said that his experience in 1998 prevented him from seeking other opportunities to coach the national team over the years.
1: And I was looking at my life, I go, when was I at my lowest point when did I feel the most pain in my life, except for my parents' passing? But aside from that, the only day I could think of was losing to Korea. And getting only a bronze in the Asian Games was by far the most difficult time in my life, uh, not getting that gold medal. And that, that's kind of kept me away from the national team ever since then. You know, I was like, it was like you know touching the fire and getting burned, and I'm not sure I want to put my hand back in that fire again.
0: I've known Coach Tim since 2007, when he invited me inside his team's locker room to write a book about their season. I've spent hundreds of hours talking hoops with him, from formal recorded interviews to casual lunches and riding shotgun next to him through endless Manila traffic. Before this, I'd never heard him describe his experience with the national team in 1998 in such stark terms. The lowest point in his life. That's the toll it can take on a coach. And of course, when Chot Reyes stepped aside as Gilas Pilipinas' head coach after the team's disappointing World Cup run earlier this month, Coach Tim has agreed to return to the role and lead the national teams in the Asian Games for the first time in 25 years. Within 48 hours of accepting the role, Coach Tim found himself in the middle of a controversy, tweeting apologies to a talented forward named Justin Baltasar who by some miscommunication was not invited to national team practices during the team's World Cup preparations. Now, days before a brand new Gilas Filipinas lineup takes the floor in the Hangzhou Asian Games, Coach Tim has had to replace four key players on short notice because the Philippine Federation failed to include their names on a list of eligible players submitted months before to the Asian Games organizers. By the time they play their first game in China... Coach Tim's national team will have had all of one week to practice together. Welcome back to national team, duty coach. Did you miss it? You've been listening to The Global Bounce. Again, I'm Rafe Bartholomew. The Global Bounce is a Puma podcast production. This episode was produced by Nina Toralba and edited by Joe Salcedo. Additional research by Geraldine Pascual with editorial support from Trisha Aquino.